And we're live. Okay, cool. Hey guys, how you doing? What's going on? How you guys doing? We're doing well. How are you doing? Doing all right. I just, uh, yeah, it's good to see you guys too. Um, this is, uh, this is the at? real life. This is the real life uh, Superman and, and Wonder Woman for people who don't know. So <laughs> <laughs> we think so anyway. No, they are. You guys are for sure. You guys fit the fit the bill. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we before we get into the show, though, I just I want to uh, bring up some some unfortunate news uh, that I just got about uh, just a little bit actually on my on my. On my drive back here, so I was at, I was at a, well, I was getting lunch uh, with my uh, IT guy, and um, unfortunately on my way, my way back, uh, I got a phone call that was uh, didn't expect. But um, so unfortunately, uh, for those of you who know who are in the bodybuilding industry, um, Boston Lloyd, who was been a big personality in YouTube for like a long time, and um, really changed the way the bodybuilding industry on YouTube. It was how transparent it was and all that. So um, I just want to say that uh, Boston passed away this morning, unfortunately, at 29 years old um, in his in his house. So um, for those of you who don't, who don't, who don't know who, who Boston is, yeah, for those of you who don't know who Boston is, he's he's uh, he was a bodybuilder um, who kind of like was the first guy who ever like kind of came on YouTube and was like, you know, kind of showing the lifestyle of what it, really took before like rich piano and all these guys were like on youtube and everything um just always super transparent about you know his his lifestyle everything he took you know performance enhancing wise all that kind of stuff and, and just really like brought a whole new scene to bodybuilding i i just know if like for one for me um i would have probably been really lost in the very beginning of my career um had it not been for boston so um i just want to give uh my condolences to his 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 wife and uh his 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 kids so um unfortunate news pretty sad this is the the second the second person who we've lost in the industry who i've actually known on a, on a personal level and i had a you know consistent communication unfortunately last time i talked with boston uh, it wasn't really a great conversation um i had kind of gotten to disagreement about him with some things of kind of how he had taken some things out against the sport recently and I didn't really like his opinion on certain things, but um, kind of shows you, you gotta be always be careful because you never know which conversations going to be your last with people. So uh, just make sure that, you know, if you, if you're in a conversation with somebody guys like right now, or, you know, um, you don't always maybe agree on everything, but just try to always remember, like, you know, if you have a positive relationship with somebody, just try to keep it and don't let the little things, you know, take over. Cause you never know, you know, uh, which conversation is going to be your last one. So. Uh, rest in peace to him and uh yeah so sorry to start off the episode with uh such bad news but um yeah now we're going to take it a positive note go from there yeah yeah so that's why i always say the one of the most important things in life is to never leave anything unsaid yeah and uh yeah make sure the people that you care about know that you care about them and you can be in a disagreement but just right and that disagreement the fact that you know still love you still respect you we'll produce out later right. Talk to you soon you know something like that right uh, no i funny. totally agree Kirk was just on a podcast uh, last week um in austin for men's health mm -hmm. journal and he was talking about that very huh. thing you know talking about living your life with courage and um you know courage just to do the right thing and make sure nothing goes unsaid so that's 
strange because he had just addressed yeah. that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I've, I've recently it's lost expected. a couple of friends yeah. myself in the last six months. I've lost two good friends. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it's heavy on my mind, too. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like in the bodybuilding industry, we just can't we can't even escape it right now. Sorry, yeah, what were you yeah. saying? I, I got got a little bit of a delay there. I, mean, I, I was just saying our, our console, our condolences to you and everybody who cared about him and, and his yeah. family. And all yeah. That, so yeah. Well, I know that he had just recently had a new kid that was born too. So, um, well, yeah, pretty sad, pretty sad stuff. But, um, do we know if he is, uh, recently vaccinated? <laughs> actually, actually, I don't think recently, but yes, he was, he was actually for, yeah. I, yeah, he was. Um, I, I, I just know that because the last time, that I had, he was on, he was on another guy I know his podcast and, and they were actually talking about it. That was, I want to say like, um, back in October, I was listening to them talk and, um, he had mentioned that, that he had, had been double vaccinated, I think. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, from what I understand, uh, from what uh, someone told me, the, the person who called me on the phone, um, who's a mutual friend, um, he said that basically what had happened was, is that, he had gotten back from the gym and um, he passed out and uh, in his house. So as soon as he got back in the door, he passed out. Um, you know, I, he, he, you know, I really don't want to get too far into this, but he, he had had a, uh, you know, he had kind of an issue with um, abusing, abusing, uh, you know, performance enhancing drugs of all sorts of sense, like his whole life. Now he'd never given me any advice. Uh, his advice to me was always very rational, but I know for himself, like it was, he always pushed the line a little bit kind of far and um you know i know his his experience with insulin and his use with insulin was pretty significant and i know for still for a fact he had still been using insulin um you know his his whole career even after he retired i mean he's still like he would mess with it here and there and i'm not sure why you know to 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 what reason he was still kind of messing around with it i mean we've if you've been in bodybuilding, you probably we probably all used insulin once or twice. But um, you know, he would always kind of push the envelope. And there's been plenty of guys in the past who have met similar fates with the same drug. So um, yeah. I don't know. I can't say for sure if that was the, the cause. I'm just saying, like, I just know that was a common thing with him. I just know that he passed out when he got home, and he kind of hit the floor pretty hard, and he never he never woke up. From what I understand, so mm -hmm. only 29. So it's pretty. Yeah. Right. There's been like a lot of, or not a lot, but a significant amount of bodybuilders and soccer players yeah. it, it who seemed, have been yeah. vaccinated. You know, yeah. It seems to be worse with higher, the higher the androgens, the higher the risk of complication with the vaccine. Uh, one of my friends who's, uh, who's my age, he's 50 ish. Um, but, uh, in great shape, you know, in great shape. So, you know, super lean works out all the time. No, no family history of anything. And he, he got the vaccine and, uh, I want to say two, two weeks later, he died on his living room couch, just like sitting there with his son. And, uh, fortunately his, his wife was a nurse and started CPR on him and called 911 and they brought him back to life, but he just literally died. Like she just, he just fell out of the couch and she ran over there and felt his pulse and it was nothing. And, uh, he, he had no cardiac issues before or since even, um, 
they did a full cardiac workup on him after, and he doesn't, he doesn't have any abnormal wall movements or, you know, any type of electrical dysfunctions or anything in his heart. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to not say, well, the, yeah. The the one the one new factor that's in there is this is this vaccine which we know right. which they admit causes heart problems, so uh, it's hard to it's hard to not suspect that you know whether it's yeah. the case or not. Yeah, I mean, well, so actually, back in December uh, when the Olympia was 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 about to happen, um, there was an there was an athlete um, who I was actually uh, going to get a chance to potentially work on for the show. Um, you guys can go back into my into my posts in my Facebook and uh, and read about it if you want. But um, he, you know, he had had some complications the night before. Um, the night before, I was actually supposed to to work with him, and uh, unfortunately, he 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 passed away that night. So uh, he went to bed, never woke back up. Um, and he he had also he had also been vaccinated not recently but i think probably four months prior to that um they did the autopsy if you actually read the autopsy there's was no issues any anything he was in perfect health perfect condition everything was like tip-top shape inside and out um and it's funny because you know the coroner just kind of chalked it up to you know anabolic steroid abuse is kind of what they wrote on the on the thing just because you know he's a bodybuilder they just they're going to throw that yeah. out there and just, you know, it's going to be the scapegoat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. exactly, it's a scapegoat. So, I mean, yeah. you know, and then TMZ decided to run with it and run with the article and write something, you know, just demeaning about it. Right. <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Anyways, guys, welcome back to the Generation Alpha podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, well, first of all, let's, Let's get into some more positive things and uh, talk a little bit about you all. So for those of you guys don't know, um, these two right here are two incredibly very special people and and they're, and they're both really good at what they do, but we're going to start with each of you first. So just kind of introduce yourselves and then just talk about your background just briefly for just a second. So people kind of understand like where you came from. So I'll start with Kirk and then we'll go to Brandy. I don't really know how to be brief. But I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> he's the real life. He's the real life Clark Kent. That's that's the that's his yeah, history yeah. right there. Real yeah, life. real life superhero. Superman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm. Uh, I yeah. I, I was born poor white trash right here in Texas, <laughs> and uh, dropped, we have that in common. Dropped, dropped out of high school. Uh, joined the Navy to become a SEAL. Went through SEAL training. Uh, did some. Uh, you know, did, did some interesting things as a SEAL, um, but it was pre-9-11, so it was all non-wartime stuff. Uh, decided I was going to go out and do something else with my life, uh, but being a high school dropout, thought, you know, maybe an athletic trainer or something, you know, something reasonable, and um, started working at San Diego Sports Medicine Center to get some experience with that, Um and then thought maybe physical therapy and then just kind of worked my way up. Some of the doctors there talked me into trying for medical school. Uh, so by the time I was applying to medical school, I was already married, had kids uh, or had a kid, had another kid on the way and um, just seemed dumb to not go to the military's medical school. I didn't know they had one until I started looking at 
uh, applications and I was like, uh, they'll pay me like, you know, the military was done for me. That, right. that was a closed chapter. I'd done it. Uh, but I was like, well, if they're going to pay me to go to medical school instead of the other way around, um, and, and a decent pay, like I, I could support my family on it. So I was like, all right, let's do that. So, uh, I went into the military, military's medical school, got commissioned in 2000. That's in Bethesda, Maryland. And then, uh, you know, did internship out in San Diego and then figured out to get back to the SEAL teams to do, you know, try to give back to the community there. Um, was really well steeped in sports medicine and, and orthopedics. Um, but when I got there, they, uh, they would come and, you know, close the door and tell me, Hey man, let me tell you what's really going on. Because you know, the worst thing you can do to them is just like an athlete. Worst thing you can do to them is put them on the bench. And so they, they lie to their healthcare providers, uh, as a matter of principle, because they don't want to be put on the bench. So they just say, everything's fine. But because I'd been a seal and, uh, there were still seals there that I'd been a seal with, and I had a, a good enough reputation, obviously for them to come trust me. And they came and told me what was really going on with them. And I, to be honest, I had no idea because I just, you know, I, I'd, I'd only been a Western trained medical physician. So I knew how to recognize right. disease and have any diseases, but they really just weren't performing as well as they wanted to. And nobody was calling this performance medicine yet, but there was integrative functional alternative medicine. Um, and I said, well, maybe it's adrenal fatigue, maybe it's some of these other things. And I started doing kind of alternative things, eventually figured out that their, their chronic sleep deprivation and their chronic use of sleep drugs was, uh, at least a significant component of their performance issues. So once we rectified all that, it turned out to be a much bigger component than I thought it was going to be. Uh, right. so that, you know, kind of drank my own Kool-Aid then. And I was like, holy smokes, like this stuff is really powerful. Uh, so I just continued to learn more about uh, sleep and uh, how it relates to, you know, everything performance oriented. And, there, and there's no facet of your life that isn't dictated by how well you sleep. You know, um, everything from, you know, it, you take your diet, for example, what you eat is one factor, but how your body processes what you eat is the more important factor. And guess what regulates that, right? You <laughs> hormones and all the hormones are, are regulated while you sleep. So, right. um, you know, you're, as you know, your muscles don't get bigger while you work out. They get weaker. You tear them apart. They get bigger when right. you're in the most anabolic state of your life, which is deep sleep. And you're actually working out or when you're actually working out and damaging those tissues. And then you go to sleep that night and they rebuild, you know, thicker so that they can do the work that you did today. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I just I. Um, because of that, uh, that revelation it allowed me to start lecturing a lot to the SEAL teams and then to other spec war organizations. And then it kind of got me because of some, uh, you know, uh, co-lecturing on, you know, sharing the stage with guys like, you know, Rob Wolf and Cresser and Wellborn and, uh, kind of Sisson and like all those dudes who are sort of leading the health online health space at that time. Um, and then they started inviting me onto their podcast and inviting me to symposiums and stuff that they were doing. And then I became this sleep guy and, you know, I, I, I don't have, I don't have like a medical specialty, uh, you know, I don't have a fellowship in sleep medicine. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, what's called a dive medical officer. So I'm certified in hyperbarics and, you know, everything else is done on my own. Uh, right. 
And uh, so that's just led to me lecturing all over the world and, uh, and doing hundreds of podcasts and writing a book on sleep and, and, uh, and having a sleep supplement that I developed, you know, to help get those guys off of the sleep drugs they were using. Um, and, uh, which I recommend to yeah, everybody. Now I, now I, I <laughs> and, 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 you know, now, what, now when I work with clients, I try to do everything right. Like I, I try to, like, I'm, I'm not just the sleep guy, but yeah. the sleep is the foundation. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I work with people on exercise, nutrition, stress mitigation, um, and, and sleep, but it's just overall performance, you know? And so whether that's hormones or peptides or yeah. nutrition or exercise or mindset or whatever, like we do, you know, we do all of that. Uh, she specializes right. in women, obviously specializes in men, but, uh, that's the shortest introduction I've ever done. So <laughs> yeah. there you go. we're going to dig it. We're going to dig more into it, but uh, yeah, that yeah. was great. With Kirk though, the, the thing about him is a lot of people know him as sleep, you know, because of, him developing the sleep supplement and all that mm. with the seals. But when I got to know him, I was so surprised at what all he did do for the seals. Like he did so much more than that, right. you know? Um, so he's, he's a little bit, uh, he doesn't brag on himself enough, but he so, did a lot. That's why you're here. Sealed. It, it's crazy mm. when I get to meet some of his friends and they'll tell me the stories about what Kirk did for him. I'm like, like, why haven't you told me that? <laughs> it, well, it, that so seems he, to be the typical thing for like guys, you know what I mean? Guys in the military, especially in that branch. Like, you know, when they don't, they don't, like, they don't talk about any of that. Yeah. No, he doesn't brag, but he's, he's done tons, tons more than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about yourself. Everybody well, I'm a small town girl, um, lived in Paris, Texas my whole life, uh, born and raised there, went to, uh, I was in, I started off just uh, at the local college there. I got my, I just became a registered nurse um, at the age of 20, started working in ICU immediately and did that for about 10 years and then decided to go back to school. And I went to become a nurse practitioner. I went to the University of Texas at Arlington and just started down the typical path, you know, of being nurse practitioner, because I thought, you know, I want to help people and started my own practice in 2007 and just started realizing that there had to be more, you know, and mm -hmm. because I just felt like I was making people worse rather than better, you know, with right. the typical Western approach. So, you know, that all evolved and I became um, steeped in functional medicine through uh, a, a friend that had just come and to my clinic to help me get a weight loss clinic started. And he was part of a metagenics and sold supplements. And so I went to a functional medicine conference and heard, heard Dr. Jeffrey Bland talk. And he talked about inflammation and inflammation's role in disease. And I was like, wow, like that makes so much sense. And right. what I'm doing does not make sense. And so that just started me down the path of, you know, learning functional medicine, which then led to integrative medicine, which then led to hormones, which, you know, my life wasn't really happy then. And so I was just like burying myself in every course of everything that I, I could the, take. So I've yeah. taken every certification course you can think just, of in functional medicine, integrative medicine. Um, and that's how I met Kirk. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's kind of, it's also how I met both of you. So 
Yeah. 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 You hadn't yeah. jumped into so, everything and went to my interview. Right. We actually all met at the same time. We did. That's when I met Craig at that same time. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So it was all in, all in Chicago, yeah. though. Is that right? Yeah. yeah Chicago. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, I, I know the first Kirk time. Was, the, the, oh, on the sorry. Right? <laughs> yeah. The first, so I would say the first time, the up. first time I met Kurt, uh, Kurt, he, he came down. We were all sitting in the lobby, and uh, and in Chicago, I, did, I, did, I yeah, yeah, yeah. We were sitting in the lobby of the hotel where the where we were having the conference, and um, <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know anything about Kurt at all, <laughs> and I didn't know his personality. I didn't know anything about him, like <laughs> if he's serious, if he's not serious. Anyways, like. <laughs> I, I just know the things that like that Dan and Micro would would say, you know, about him. I did hear like little things here and there. Like I knew he was involved in Navy SEALs. Like I knew you were like, you know, the the sleep guy, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know anything else, you know, re- regarding that. Um, all I knew is that you were coming there and you were gonna like, you know, you were gonna be there that weekend. And uh, we're all sitting around this table. We're sitting in the lobby and and um, <laughs> I don't know if we were eating or whatever the deal was. Uh, Dan is sitting beside of me and he goes, uh, he goes, I just think is because Micah was like, Hey, like see if Kirk wants to come down, like see if, cause I know he's, you know, he's staying upstairs, like see if he wants to come down and join us. So Dan, same beside Dan goes, he goes, oh, he goes, I just texted Kirk. He goes, uh, Kirk texted me back. He said, uh, do I have to put on pants? <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was the first, that was the first impression that I ever got. And I was like, I was like, I was like, who is this guy? You know? And then, and then he, and then he, he comes down, you know, that hear all these things. And then he's like, he's like the exact like persona and everything of like, you know, like, of like who, like kind of like everything they had said. So it's always funny because you never know, like if someone's going to like match, like visually the criteria of like what you kind of hear about right. him on the side. And then he like comes down and he's like, remember, I just remember like his, like for those of you who <laughs> you can't see, we're not watching the video, we're not watching our live. Um, Kirk's hands are like the size of like catcher mitts. And, uh, and they're, they're they're ridiculous, and so I remember he came down. He's just like this. He's like this, he's like this this big guy, and, and like in most rooms, like right, like I'm the, I'm the big dude in most rooms, right? Like like in most rooms I walk into, like most people are like you know like like I'm the big guy, but Kurt comes down yeah. all of a sudden and he sits down, and I'm like I'm sitting there and I'm just like you know I'm, <laughs> it's like he like he puts his hands up on the table, you know he's sitting there and he's like kind of like just he's like you know he's all he's all cool he's sitting there. I'm like I'm like damn like. You know, like this guy, this guy's the real deal. Like you can just, you can just feel like when someone's like, you know, the real deal. Like I feel like when any kind of like Navy SEAL or somebody like really enters the room, like they just their demeanor, like your guys' demeanor just change, like just changes the whole dynamic in like whatever room. And you're just like, you can just look at, you can just look at somebody. Like I'm sure you know because you've been around plenty of like dudes who are probably like you know seriously badass and you know in your whole career. But you can just look at a guy and just be like, that guy's that guy's killed people. Like you can just look at this guy's face and be like, he's like, he's seen like, he's seen some shit. I was like, I was like, well, I was like, I just lost, uh, I just lost all the cool points in the room and all goes to crack. So, uh, but yeah, so that was the first, that was the first impression. That's how I feel about, that's how I feel about all my friends. You know, when I, my friends come around my house, like I'm, I'm the little insignificant guy, you know? So yeah. That same weekend or that weekend that we met, um, you know, I, all I did was listen to podcasts because I was in this world, you know, of integrative medicine and trying to find my way in a small town, you know, 
very difficult because they're, you know, everybody's so close minded. So all I did was listen to podcasts and that was a way to kind of drown out life, you know? And so um, I had heard Kirk on all the podcasts, so I know who he was, you know, and mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you remember, but the last day we had like this conversation agility practice to where we were having to interview each other. Oh, yeah. Okay. Do you remember yeah. that, Daniel? Yeah. And so, well, I mean, I've, been to so had, I've been to so many. So I, yeah. yeah, well, we had been at our tables, like working with everybody within the, our table the whole okay. weekend. Well, this particular exercise, they wanted us to get away from our table and meet meet up with someone else. And okay. I hate doing stuff like that because I'm, you know, can be a little shy. And so I was kind of dragging my feet and uh, we had to go draw numbers to, you know, to see what exercise we were going to do. And we had to keep it hidden from the person we were interviewing. And so I was kind of dragging my feet, hoping that, you know, everybody would be paired up. And so um, I went over to the table. I was one of the last ones to get a number and I'm turned around. I'm like, okay, yeah, everybody has is paired up. And then I, then Kirk is looking straight at me and says, you want to pair up? And I was like, oh, God, of all people. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't know, you know, like I didn't know how he was going to be. And, and then we, we met and he was like super easy and super comfortable to talk to and was so nice. So that was how our story began. <laughs> So that, so that is the first time you guys met. I didn't know that. Yeah. Very first time. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Really cool. Now it's funny, like mm -hmm. how many people like you interestingly, like, like, you know, like you would run into at these conferences and obviously like, you know, it's funny because the first, like for those we're, we're talking about, you know, the appear on Academy, um, live events that we used, that we used to have. And, um, I, you know, what's funny is like, I was at like the first one we ever did, like I was at the first one we ever did, which was like a, you know, it was like a room of like, I can't even remember. There was like maybe 20 people there total. And we were like inside of this like little, like tiny room inside of like some hotel in, in Asheville, North Carolina. The, the hotel was like still having construction go on inside. <laughs> so we're like sitting there like in the conference and we're just like, and the walls are like banging. Somebody's like banging against the wall, like next door, like doing construction <laughs> in the next room. And so it's just so funny to see though, like, the evolution of how everything changed over time. And then like, because I would go to like, yeah, I, I didn't go to every single live event, but I would go to most of them. And um, it's just funny to see kind of like how all the people uh, who I've met over the years, like all these people like you guys and, and so many other, um, so many other interesting people involved in the health and, you know, functional medicine, integrative health, you know, uh, space. Um, I, I've just, I've had so many different experiences, so many different um, interactions with just uh, just people from all around the you know, like the hemisphere when it came to like you know health and personal training and you know functional medicine and all this kind of stuff and it, it's just like it blows my mind sometimes to think like where we started with everything and I had no idea like how many interactions like how many relationships that I was going to develop through being a part of that first experience, like walking to the room that one day. And I just remember like, like I was, I was like you, like I was like Brandy because I had, you know, and I guess like Kirk too, you know, I felt like in my opinion, like I had like no background and I was going into like this room because I was basically only invited essentially because, you know, uh, Dan knew me growing up as a kid. So like he, okay. you know, Dr. Stickler like knew me growing up as a child. So like he kind of, he allowed me to come into the room because initially it was only for physicians. It was only initially only open for physicians. Yeah. So 
Um, and I'm going in there with all these people who graduated from like MIT and, you know, uh, these people like, you know, they're like genomic experts and, you know, all this stuff. And they're using all these terms and big words. And I was like, man, like, like, I, you know, like I barely passed high school biology. <laughs> I don't know why I'm here. You know what I mean? And so like, I just remember thinking at the time, like there was a guy who was sitting next to me. He was, you know, an expert in pharmacology and, and the girl who was sitting to my right, like she was, you know, she had studied, you know, uh, like, you know, gen- genetics or, you know, genomics in, in, in school and college. And, you know, she had graduated from MIT and all this stuff. And, and I was like, they, I was so intimidated with the whole experience. Yeah. I remember like after the first couple of days, but at the same time, I don't think anybody in that room ever made me feel like I was anything yeah. less than them. You know what yeah. I mean? So like, yeah. and then at, over time, like we would go into like these new live events over and over and, um, to the point where I started becoming like the, like a person in the room, like that people wanted to come up and talk to or wanted to meet because I was like now part of like, you know, the whole, the whole team. So it's just like, mm-hmm. it's just wow. Because like, just to think about like both of you, like, you know, how you guys had never met because of the whole experience and then how I'd never met either of you, uh, you know, right. regarding the whole experience. So yeah, it's just, it's really cool. But yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It's kind of. Great to be to with that. a lot of like-minded people because you you feel at home with them, you know. Right. Well, I mean, my best friend. I mean, my best friend came from you know my best friend and my co-host to my podcast, and uh, you know who I do a lot of you know who, who's like my right-hand guy with everything. You know, uh, Charlie Ware, um, which you guys know, I'm right. sure. Um, you know, me and like me and Charlie wouldn't be best friends if you know if if it weren't for if it wasn't for a peer on. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's crazy to think and then you guys would have never met and you know we all know yep. <laughs> you guys would have never been the real no. life superman superman and uh, wonder woman had had appear on not existed <laughs> you guys uh looked like you were having some having some fun on valentine's day i was i was i was, <laughs> I was messing with brandy over ig i said he like pulled out the uh she pulled out the thing i said bass and chris pulled out the the strawberries and cool whip i was like man i was like this is mm-hmm. this is getting Gotta be careful. You guys are putting yeah. on IG here. I was yeah. like, this is getting a little bit, getting a little bit out of control here. <laughs> we had you know, a good time. He, I'm sure it was, it was a sweet I'm night. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, you want to talk a little bit about performance when it came when it comes to sleep, and you know, it's funny because the last episode I just did, I had one of the chairman of the Sleep Apnea Association. Um, on my podcast and, and him just talking about that. How many people, like I asked him this question, I just want to see what your thoughts are. How many people do you think, do they miss um, the diagnosis of people who potentially have sleep apnea? How many people do you think just go their whole life and never even know? Like if you had to say like percentage wise. Well, it's, it's hard to say because right. um, yeah, the, the medical community considers sleep apnea to be, a permanent condition like 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 type 2 diabetes they consider a permanent condition um even if you cure it with you know nutrition and supplements and even you know some pharmacology whatever you get rid of it they're like well it's still there and like if you quit you know if you quit doing what you're doing then it's going to come back so it's not it's not cured uh and they say the same about sleep apnea but um you know if, if you think about uh, how prevalent sleep apnea is in men. Uh, when, if you, I think if you just 
randomly selected male populations, probably over 35, you'd probably find a third of them would meet the diagnostic criteria for obstructive sleep apnea. Well, that seems kind of crazy evolutionarily, right? Because if it's, if it's a disease or disorder, does it make sense that a third of people would have had it evolutionarily? And we've only developed the technology to find it in the last 30 years or something. Um, so a lot of it does have to do with lifestyle. So in that vein, you can say, well, you know, it could also, it could obviously be that prevalent, just like, um, you know, metabolic syndrome or prediabetes is probably that probably that common as well. Um, so if, if you're just, if you're just, if you're just saying like the random population, I would say probably a third, a third of men would meet the criteria at some point. But in my experience, people don't stay on, uh, you know, don't, don't need to stay on a CPAP their whole life. Um, 99% of the time you can get people off of the CPAP by improving their lifestyle. And so if people are improving their lifestyle on their own and they never, you know, they never saw a doctor, like maybe they had sleep apnea for a while and didn't really know it, but, you know, improved their lifestyle, you know, got their hormones in order, got their sleep in order, or, yeah. uh, got their body in order, and then they didn't have sleep apnea anymore. And then they went the rest of their life without sleep apnea, or maybe went in and out of that a few times, depending on how fit they were and how serious and committed they were to their fitness. Um, yeah. so it, it's a hard number to balance, but, um, I, I think it's, I think it's over-treated with CPAP, you know, because people just throw the CPAP on and they're just like, Hey, if you're not doing well, we'll titrate it up and then we'll titrate it up and we'll titrate it up. Uh, and mm -hmm. first of all, it's gotta be the world's best birth control device. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's not, it's, it's not a flattering yeah. thing sleeping with, you know, um, and, no, you can't, and I wouldn't you can't bring a CPAP over to a girl's house. Trust me. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, yeah. doesn't look too good. And, and what am I going to do with Navy? seals right like hey take the cpap and field with you and like you know like yeah, right. that's not going to happen so how often right. like or when are they going to actually use it when are they not going to use it um so i you know i uh sleep specialists don't really like to hear me say that um because like i said they they think of it as a permanent condition but um i i think if you if you took out the lifestyle factors you'd be looking at like one to 3% of the population that would probably have some sort of true sleep disease. You know, Daniel, um, I went, I was a nurse practitioner, have had a private practice for, like I said, 14 years, mm -hmm. um, and did a lot of family practice, but also did a lot of hormone replacement. And one of the things that I learned from Kirk that I had never heard, um, you know, I knew the lifestyle factors, getting people to lose weight, you know, getting in, and I knew there was an association with low testosterone in men who had sleep apnea, uh, but I had no idea correcting their testosterone would also improve their sleep apnea until Kirk and I, you know, we talk about medical mm -hmm. stuff all the time. And he was telling me about how, you know, correcting someone's testosterone improves their neuromuscular tension, which improves their sleep apnea. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I knew yeah, I was getting pretty. people better treating their hormones and they were sleeping better and all of a sudden feeling like they didn't need their CPAP, but I didn't understand the mechanism behind it. And you certainly don't hear that in any conference yeah. or any, you know, when you do go and learn about sleep apnea and the different treatments that rarely comes up. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I just wanted to, cause I just wanted to get your take, right? Because you know, uh, obviously the guy who I had on, um, you know, 
which will be last week when this actually goes on to the actual podcast net uh, for next week. Um, we're live right now, but it will be going. It won't be going up to uh, to Apple until uh, and Spotify until next week. So uh, the last episode that you guys heard, which would be episode seven, um, he his whole take on it was just you know it was different. So you know, obviously, I kind of wanted to hear your take on it because I wanted to know like you know because I know that you and I probably think probably a little bit more similar on the similar lines, but you know, there was also a lot of stuff that I learned from him as well that I didn't really know affected, you know, a particular group of people um, as well. Cause I know he, he talked about, you know, the airways of how his mouth was shaped and the development of his jawline and all this kind of stuff that I didn't even know people actually dealt or struggled with. Um, you know, so, but, and then also being from a bodybuilding and athlete perspective, um, I, I had sleep apnea for, I would say probably, almost close to two years. Uh, I was up to over 230 pounds, you know, almost 230 pounds at one point. I'm only about 5'10". So, I mean, you know, it's not like as big as I could have gotten. I obviously could have gotten a lot bigger, but for me, that was a pretty significant amount of weight. I had no idea that I had sleep apnea until, um, until actually, you know, I was, I was dating a girl and, um, and I had never really kind of like let someone live with me on a consistent basis. And, she obviously knows nothing, right? Like she knew nothing about sleep health, um, anything like that. Um, and she, the way she was describing everything, but because I knew, because I had an understanding of kind of a basic understanding of sleep apnea and sleep disorders and that kind of stuff, obviously just being from like a functional health perspective with performance, um, the way she was describing my sleeping patterns and how I was sleeping and the noises that I was making, I was like, she started telling me some things and I'm like, Oh man, like that's not good. Right. Like the way she was describing everything is she was like, you know, like you'll be like, you'll, you like, you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you'll just be like, <gasps> like you'll just gasp for air. And she's like, and then you'll just like fall back asleep. I had no idea I was doing that. And then, so I started recording myself on my phone and then I would just go back and listen to like the highlights of like this app. Basically, they would record sounds in my room and they would highlight certain particular sounds that it felt could have possibly been like, you know, highlighted awareness. And, and I, I think it's just, it's called like, it's called like sleep cycle or something like that. You can download it on the Apple store um, for those people yeah. who are interested in maybe just hearing kind of what's going on inside their room at night who don't know. I mean, it's a great tool to kind of hear things um, if you think that you potentially might need a sleep study or something like that. So I pretty much knew immediately when I started recording myself, I was like, man, like, this is bad. Like I knew I was like, you know, I was on my way to like, you know, really developing sleep apnea. And what's crazy is I didn't know how, you know, how long it had been. Right. And just because of like my past history with like certain things with like, you know, with drugs and alcohol and that kind of stuff, like who knows how much damage I've done to my brain and, you know, um, you know, all, all that stuff, you know, before my brain was even fully developed at a certain point um, over time. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I, I've talked about that in previous episodes, um, but I, I just thought, man, like this is not good, right? Because of the amount of damage that it does to brain cells over time when you're not sleeping correctly, you know, every night, especially like the amount of, you know, brain damage that sleep apnea just does in itself with asphyxiation, you know what I mean? So, cause for those people who don't know, cause I, we didn't really even go over the last episode, but just kind of briefly explain the whole process of of, of kind of like why sleep is so important and, uh, you know, to the overall health and the processes that kind of go on during the middle of the night of why it's so particular to performance and, you know, hormones and all that. Yeah. So, um, you know, my, sort of my new, 
my my new metaphor is that well not a metaphor whatever uh my new description is that uh, the reason the reason that i'm going to sleep tonight is to repair from today and to prepare for tomorrow right and my brain and my body are going to use today as the template as to what i need to be better at tomorrow the whole idea of me going to sleep is to fix any damage that I've done myself today and then stockpile anything that I'm going to need in order to do something tomorrow that's very similar to today. So like in the earlier example, when we talked about when you lift weights and you go into, you go well past failure, or especially if you do like something like HIIT training, you can actually rupture muscle cells, right? You're actually, you're actually killing off muscle cells. You're damaging your muscles. But my, my brain and my body recognize that this is part of life. This is part of evolution. And, and, and it says, well, uh, we like these cells got damaged because this tension was put across these muscles in this certain way. So we're going to try to build those muscles up stronger so that tomorrow, if he does the same thing, he's going to be able to do it without damaging us. Right. And then, right. of course, our job as as athletes is to do more <laughs> so that our body has to get better right. yet again. And if, and you can do the same thing with endurance. If I completely exhaust all of my fuel stores and I keep going and my muscles become acidemic and everything's getting damaged. When I go to sleep tonight, my body's going to prepare my, it's going to try to pr prepare my cells tomorrow so that I can do that endurance activity tomorrow without doing as much damage to myself. And so if you think about it like that and you go, okay, well, if, if I'm going to put to bed and I'll expand on this in a minute, but if I'm going to bed tonight to repair for tomorrow or repair from today and to prepare for tomorrow, if I could repair a hundred percent and I could, you know, fuel partition and, you know, stockpile all the resources that I need, be that, you know, hormones, neurotransmitters, glycogen stores, adipose stores, like whatever, like, like if my body gets myself ready to, to do tomorrow better than I was able to do it today, or at least as good, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be aging. Right. Because I would be, I'd be repairing a hundred percent and every, all the damage that I did would be repaired. And tomorrow I'd wake up exactly the same way as I was today. And I would never get any older. Well, we know that doesn't happen because somewhere around 30 ish, 30, 35 years old, we start losing the ability to repair 100% overnight. If you think about kids, they're repairing 101, 102%, right? Because kids go to sleep. One thing, they sleep like 12 hours instead of, you know, eight. But, you know, they're sleeping longer, but they're also have, you know, more re restorative sleep and they have different hormone balances and, you know, more active immune system and the immune system is really the repair system. Um, and so they're actually waking up better. You can see little kids waking up taller and smarter and faster and stronger. Right. Um, and then at a certain age, we kind of plateau and then we, it starts going the other way. So as you're talking about, um, if you, if you impair that sleep, well, then you're impairing your ability to repair. And I'll talk about the details of that in just a second. But here's how we make it worse. We're the only species on this planet that chooses to sleep deprive itself. Right. That we say, well, yeah, wow. sure. I need eight. I need eight hours of sleep, but I'm only going to do six because I got to get up early and do some stuff. So I've just given up 25 percent of my repair mechanism. Right. Which means that I've given up 25 percent of my improvement minimum and I've chosen to age 25 percent faster. 
So if you think about that terms, like I'll leave you with that. Now let's talk about the specifics. Uh, when you when you first go to sleep, uh, you know, when we combine everything on a sleep study, so all the electrodes on the head and your respiratory rate and your pulse ox and your pulse and uh, your movement it's called actigraphy. When we combine all of that, we come up with this thing called a hypnogram. And it's this little stair step looking uh, graph that goes across time on the X axis and sleep stages, which is really brain, it's primarily brain brainwave uh, frequencies on the y-axis and you go down uh as you as you get in bed you're at stage one you go to stage two stage three and stage four deep sleep and then you travel across the x-axis time and then you step back up from four to three to two you go past one and you go into REM and do a little bit of REM sleep and then that's the end of one sleep cycle but when you first go to bed your first sleep cycle is about 90 percent deep sleep so that slow wave sleep that's theta and delta brainwave state and that is the most anabolic time in your life, okay? Uh, I tell people fight or flight is the most catabolic phase, right? And for anyone in your audience who doesn't know, you just think catabolic, catabolic is taking uh, big complex structures and breaking them down into simple structures. So if I'm starving and my cells need amino acids, I can break down my own muscle to provide other cells or other organs, other tissues, other cells in my body with amino acids if they need that. So that would be catabolic. I'm using myself as a fuel source. Anabolic is the opposite. I eat a steak, I break that protein down into amino acids, and then my body absorbs those amino acids and they use those amino acids to build muscles to repair the damage I did today in the gym. So that would be anabolic, right? So when I first go to sleep, I go into the deepest the deepest sleep, the slowest brainwave state. And that is the most anabolic time in my life. I have almost no stress hormones. That's the lowest my stress hormones will ever be in a 24 hour period. And so the exact opposite of fight or flight is going on, right? Fight or flight, maximum catabolic, you're sort of superhuman, but you're using yourself as a fuel source, right? You're faster, you're stronger, you have more endurance, better pain threshold, reflexes are faster, pupils are taking in more light, lungs are expanding more blood pressure is higher blood glucose goes higher you but it's all musculoskeletal all of your viscera is shutting down essentially right you're not digesting you're not getting ready to reproduce you're not producing hormones you're not repairing anything you're not fighting off infections like all of that stuff that keeps us alive long term isn't going on uh when we're in deep sleep it's the exact opposite all the stuff that provides long-term stability and survival is happening during deep sleep. And one of the first things that happens, uh, something you alluded to earlier, is the cells that hold the structure of the brain, they're called astrocytes, they shrink down by about 30% and they create all these channels. And those channels allow the cerebral spinal fluid to flush through the brain and run fluid right past the cell wall of every single neuron in your brain. And that flushes out waste products. If you think about about any cell in your body, it's just a smaller version of you. You are trillions of the same thing, right? Every cell takes in nourishment, nutrients. It does work. It produces waste. You, when you're awake, you take in nutrients, you do work, you produce waste, right? We're the same. And our cells have a cycle and we have a cycle. So you have to flush out all the waste products. The waste products are what those which is what that brain inflammation and the and those uh, beta amyloid and tau proteins are coming from. They're coming from the waste product buildup because that's inflammatory. That's dangerous. That's so. And if you think about our blood vessels, when we have uh, a, when we have constant blood vessel 
insult from having really small particle sizes of, of lipids and they're embedding into our cell walls and they're causing a little inflammation and our body gets tired of fighting that inflammation. So the smart thing to do is just lay down a little calcium wall, like a little brick wall, just cover it up. We don't have to fight that infection anymore. We don't have to fight that insult. Well, your brain does that with these proteins, the beta amyloid proteins and tau proteins. Just like, hey, we're tired of fighting off this inflammation. We're just going to wall it off with this protein structure. And then those are markers for brain damage, right? Those aren't causing brain damage. Right. <laughs> They're the marker for the brain damage. They're the result right. of the damage. So whether you choose to stay up late and uh, not sleep in, so you, or you choose to get up really early, or if you just get poor quality sleep, it doesn't matter. It all has the same result. You aren't repairing, right? So you do your first deep sleep cycle you get rid of uh, the waste products in your brain and everywhere else. And then you start reproducing neurotransmitters that are going to be needed for the next day. You, your immune system starts repairing those damaged tissues, like anything that you injured or just exercise. All right. If you exerted uh, more work than that tissue can do, that tissue is going to be damaged and need repair. And most often that's our muscles, but it can be our brain as well. Um, and we'll, we'll, re, we'll repair all of that. And the first sleep cycle, we'll probably do about half of all the repair, maybe 40% of all the repair we're going to do. And then we'll have a tiny bit of REM sleep. And what REM sleep does is it categorizes things emotionally and it solidifies learning. So if I've learned something, whether it's, you know, a skill like a certain lift or uh, playing the piano or something like that, or if it's something that I'm learning and I'm trying to recall or, you know, um, be able to work with that information or right. if it's just right. dealing with conversations that I've had that day, especially emotional conversations. Um, you know, if, if, if Brandy and I get in a spat over dirty dishes in the sink or something that should be gone as soon as that conversation's over with. Right. Like yeah, as, as soon as we're done with that, like that, that should never be a thing again. <laughs> But if you're chronically sleep deprived and you don't emotionally categorize that in the right place, then tomorrow when something sparks that memory, well, that has like a, a lot more of a, a lot more of a little twang to it than it should. And it causes more of an emotional response to me than it should. Mm -hmm. We think this is sort of the foundation for PTSD, right? So when people are being exposed to emotional events and they're in combat and they aren't getting good quality sleep, or even if they're you know not in combat and, you know, but you think of something like, you know, the death of a spouse or being assaulted or being in a bad car crash or something like that. That's going to mess up your sleep for quite a quite a long time if you're holding a lot of stress about it, which is really common. And so then you don't emotionally categorize events. Um, and then the other thing that happens, like I said, is it is it solidifies learning. So it takes things from my working memory and it puts them into my long term memory and then it starts forming durable tracks. Um, so it's not enough to have the information accessible in your brain. You have to have ways to access it. You have to have sort of trails, right? Like wires, think, you can think of it like wires to access it or little foot trails to access it. And the more you access it, the, bet, the more robust that trail comes, the more durable it comes. And then when you really learn something, when you really know something, you've attached, you know, 20 or 30 different things that you already knew to this new information. And now you can think about it from a ton of different angles and in a different way. Now you really learned, you've learned that information. And again, that's happening in REM sleep. 
the first sleep cycle is almost all deep. So it's fighting off infection, it's repairing, it's restoring, it's releasing anabolic hormones. My reproductive health is coming from that. All of this, think of all my visceral organs, they're doing their job to the maximum. I'm, I'm setting my appetite for the next day. I'm releasing my anabolic hormones, my thyroid, my you know, testosterone, DHEA, like all, like all of my hormones are, and even my appetite regulation hormones, things like ghrelin and my fat storage, like leptin, that's being, that's all being managed during deep sleep. And then I, I start another deep, I start another sleep cycle and that's going to go into deep. And so my first sleep cycle, 90 to 120 minutes, 90% of that's going to be deep sleep. My next sleep cycle it's going to be probably about 60 to 70% deep sleep. The next one's going to be about 40% deep sleep. By the time I get to the morning, it's going to be 90% REM sleep and 10% deep sleep. So that, that transition goes throughout the whole night. So when people say, what happens when you sleep? It's like, well, what happens when, when you're awake, right? It's like lots of things happen. It depends on what point of the day you're talking about, what point of the night you're talking right. about. Got it. Um, Got it. But if you, if you stay up really late and your circadian rhythm is aligned to the light, you know, to the sun out there um, and you stay up till two in the morning and go to bed and you get up at your normal time, 6 a.m., what you've primarily lost is deep sleep. If you go to sleep at 10 p.m., but you decide you're going to get up at 4 a.m., uh, because you're going to go do something yeah. more important, like go to the gym <laughs> or whatever, uh, you're going to lose REM sleep. And then you can see those symptoms evolving in people over time. So the only time I told you that we're the only animal, we're the only mammal that chooses to sleep deprive ourselves. I like that. We're the only species on the planet. But uh, other mammals will sleep deprive themselves when they are being preyed upon. If they're being stalked, uh, obviously they want to sleep the least amount as possible so they can avoid the predator or if they're starving. So there's good reason to believe that your brain proceeds, proceeds uh, sleep deprivation as a marker for danger. Like, oh, I'm being, either I'm being hunted or I'm starving, I'm in famine. So my body's going to prepare myself for either of those, uh, either of those situations. Like, okay, so which is it? All right, so if I don't sleep enough, and I told you it takes eight hours to repair and to prepare for tomorrow. And I only sleep six hours instead of eight. And tomorrow still comes at the same time. I still have to get up and do everything. How do I do mm -hmm. it if I don't have the resources? I release more stress hormones, which are catabolic. And then those catabolic hormones are going to make me feel better through the day. And that's the same way every other animal does when they're being preyed upon or if they're starving, they run or they run higher stress hormones and it gives them the ability to go farther and it makes them a little more uh uh a little less risk averse uh because they need you know they're in a bad situation they need to try to get out of this situation in whatever way they can whether that's eating some novel food that might kill them because they don't know but they're starving to death or if it's you know taking a path that they would ordinarily never take because it's going to keep them away from a predator but it puts them at risk of falling or something like that and so our brains do the same thing. And so when you look at somebody who's sleep deprived, not only did you not repair enough and did you did not prepare enough, you're also now running higher stress hormones. So you're more catabolic mm. and you're breaking down your body. And so if you get up, if you sleep deprive yourself to have time to go work out, 
that's a negative sum game, right? It's like you, right. you are damaging right. yourself and then not repairing and then getting up early the next day to go damage yourself again when you're not repaired from the day before. And so uh, you can still be active, but you can't go out there and do work that exceeds your body's capacity that's going to need to re be repaired, right? You still need to be active to be healthy, but it's a bad idea to, to work, you know, to sleep deprive yourself to work out and I'll, I'll shut up now. Cause I could go in for two hours with that. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. You know, I, I want to ask Brandy a question real quick, you know, cause I, I feel like, you know, I see this in a lot of young girls and stuff who I work with and I don't know how many, um, like, you know, what's your age range that you typically, uh, you know, work with or, or specifically, but, um, you know, being, being a women's health specialist, do you feel like a lot of girls who are like typically, diagnosed as ADHD, things like that. Do you, do you feel like a lot of that is misdiagnosed in a sense of just like they're, they're being overstimulated in their mind, their sleeps being disrupted at night. And so therefore it's causing all these things to happen during the day. And then they exhibit these symptoms of someone who may potentially be ADHD. And as soon as they kind of go through the check boxes with their doctor, then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you ADHD, no doubt, you know, I mean, Adderall, you know, here, let's fix it. Do you, do you feel like it's a common thing or do you feel like Certainly. I think a lot of things are very, very commonly treated that really go down to sleep many times, you know, um, and hormone dysregulation that can occur due to the lack of sleep. Um, you know, myself being one of those and didn't appreciate the importance of sleep and just, you know, being, I was more worried about being disciplined and being, you know, making sure that I was determined to get my workouts in and doesn't, didn't matter, right. you know, how much I was sleeping, I was going to get up at by 4.30 and go to the gym, you know, and couldn't understand why I didn't feel good and why my hormones were terrible and, you know, and uh, had this like estrogen dominant picture going on and I couldn't figure it out, you know. And so most of it was because I was just, I was thought I was being good to myself, but I, but I wasn't, you know, uh, wasn't treating myself well. And I, I see that a lot with females. They um, get treated for all different kinds of things, PCOS, um, many different I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring PCOS up. Yeah, just due to lifestyle, you know, simple things that can make a huge difference in the way that their hormones react. And I and I defy you to uh, find a difference between the diagnostic criteria of chronic insomnia and ADHD. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's exactly yeah, the same. Yeah, the, pre, I mean, the prefrontal cortex is the prefrontal cortex that that's our that's the part right. of our brain that makes us the smartest animal on the planet. Right. It allows us to explore ideas without having to try them out first. And it allows us to predict mm -hmm. the future and predict outcomes and it allows us to solve complex problems. And when you're in fight or flight, that's turned off because you don't want to be thinking your way out of a fight. You want to be yes. reacting your way out of a fight. So that prefrontal cortex is essentially gone when you're at maximum stress. Well, if you're choosing to run at 50% of, of your normal stress levels, you know, 50% higher, you're, you're, you know, you're impairing your prefrontal cortex and attention deficit disorder. Isn't necessarily a deficit. It's just, it's an appropriate attention. And what happens when you're sleep deprived, just, you know, stay up for 36 hours and tell me how your attention goes. You know, you, it, yeah, you can't pay attention to what somebody's saying, but you might spend six hours trying to you know, replace a thread through the buttonhole of your of your shirt where you're sitting there just because 
you like you can pay attention. It's just like you don't have appropriate control of your attention. So everything that you hear when when you hear of anybody being diagnosed with ADHD, I always say, did you sleep adapt them first? Right. Because you know, sleep adapt means you get get people to where they've slept at least three weeks with adequate sleep. And then you and then you test them and then you see how you know what their behaviors are like and how capable they are. Yeah, it's not There's only ADHD, things, huh? but it's all, you know, emotional, yeah. um, depression, anxiety, uh, because, anxiety. you know, we lose yeah. control um, when we lose the ability to use our prefrontal frontal cortex appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our emotions are very difficult then to control. So, you know, and, we, all, and all of our discipline and our willpower and all that, that all comes from the prefrontal cortex. So when you start impairing that, then you're going to make worse life choices. And I don't just mean, you know, thing consequential decisions with relationships and jobs and things, but like what you choose to eat and whether or not you exercise and how you choose to exercise and uh, the meaning that you ascribe to somebody's facial expression or the meaning you ascribe to what your spouse said to you or whatever, all of that is dictated by how well your prefrontal cortex is working. And if you're not, if you're impairing it on purpose, I mean, it, it's it, it yeah. seems ridiculous when when you learn like and most people don't know that you know but when you when you learn that oh actually my my ability to succeed and work towards the future that I want is almost a hundred percent dependent upon how prepared I am right how many resources right. I have no and a hundred percent of those resources are determined by how well I'm sleeping right if I'm getting adequate sleep so if I'm choosing 100%. you know it's like saying well I you know I, I want to go. I want to go buy a multi-million dollar house, but I'm also going to throw away $10,000 a week on donuts or something. You know, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Like you're, you're defeating yourself. Yeah. You know, you're going against your own best interest. There, there's yeah, someone I wish you guys could talk to. <laughs> there's someone I wish you guys could, could pull you in, have a conversation right. with somebody who I know. I wish. But, One of the things but, I heard Kirk talk about a lot that, that I feel like is, is just spot on as he said, one of the most important things that he does with people is make, make them see that they need to appreciate sleep, you know, uh, because so many people don't. And that's the first place that they subtract from their day when they need more time. And women are especially were, are horrible at this because they're taking care of little ones. And, uh, you know, they, they do the, all the motherly things at night and then they need their time to their self once the babies go to bed, you know, and then they need to get up and get them ready for school the next day. And it is so challenging for me to, to help, you know, to, to make them understand that they to be the better them, they've got to prioritize sleep. Um, and, you know, women are just so bad about that because they, I, I'm, I'm speaking from experience, my personal experience, you know, right. um, I just, well, you know, that's, that's just being selfish or, or whatever, you know, um, but it's, it's just so important, uh, to be, to be the best version of yourself. You've got to have appropriate sleep. There's a, there's a common, you know, there's this thing that everyone says about Navy SEALs. Um, cause you talked a little bit about, you know, stress response and being able to switch, you know, in your nervous system function, being able to go, you know, from that, that fight or flight state, you know what I mean? Back to just, you know, that baseline of where you really want to be, uh, the majority of the time now, you know, most people will say that. It is, you know, a trainable function, no doubt. Um, but I, I hear a lot, and maybe you can clarify this, 
because you have actual actual experience of working with guys on the ground. Um, I hear a lot that Navy SEALs are born a lot of times with a genetic ability um, to be able to switch from parasympathetic to sympathetic nervous system, kind of like mm-hmm. on a dot, uh, just simply because, you know, that's kind of what allows them to complete, you know, um, SEAL training and stuff, whereas other people just can't get through it. Um, one of the functions just being the fact that they're just genetically made to be able to switch that function, you know, on and off better than most humans. Is, is that, is that, is there truth to that? Or is that like, is that like a, is that a war myth? I mean, what is- yeah, I, I think um, there, there's probably a grain of truth to that and that, um, you know, in, at the beginning of the, of the war, like the nine 11 post nine 11 war, um, you know, Rumsfeld's number one military objective was to increase the size of the seal teams. Uh, we had about 2000 seals. He wanted us to have 3000 seals. And so we did all this stuff to ramp up training. Uh, and we just can't produce that many seals, <laughs> um, because it is, it, it's a, it's a self-selecting bias, you know, it, it's like, uh, there, so there's this question that's been going on forever and they've spent millions and millions of dollars chasing it because you think about it logistically, you know, uh, the SEAL community is paying for the training of SEALs. So it's, it's paying for the selection, but then it's also paying for the SEALs once they're SEALs to keep training them, right? Uh, but it's all out of the same budget. Well, if 90% of the people you you train fail, <laughs> then you're wasting 90% of your dollars. You're wasting 90 cents on every dollar. Right. Um, and so they've been trying to figure out for a long time, Hey, are, are we training seals or are we finding seals? Right. Like, are we just, are we just finding people who can, who can handle this kind of stuff already? Like they, like it's built into them either through life, you know, life events or genetics or whatever. Right. Um, and, of course, one of the things that we do is we select out for people who can't sleep well or, you know, who can't handle sleep deprivation well. Uh, we go an entire week without sleeping and, and SEAL training. Now, there's no functional benefit to that, right? Like uh, the only functional benefit to that is to select out people who just genetically can't handle it. We're not all the same, you know. Uh, it, it's, that's not a popular thing to say, but you know, that's the reason we have the Olympics, right? No, nobody, nobody's going to tune in to watch me run a hundred meter dash, you know, because I'm not an Olympian, right? Like there's differences between us and some people can handle sleep deprivation better than others. Uh, Some people can handle stress better than others. Um, And I've had this theory for decades now that I think due to our training, uh, the way we the way we train seals because of the way seals have to operate in their small organizations and the amount of emotional and intellectual clarity they need during the most stressful event you could possibly go through. Um, I think we actually train people to reverse their autonomics. So when seals hear that before. gun gunfire, they run towards the gunfire. And they're communicating and they're moving and they're they're really focused you know they have some adrenaline going but they're not nervous they're not anxious they're not scared at all and they're and they're really clear about what they should be doing and if you ask them detailed questions they'd be able to answer them but then when they come home from war and they sit on their couch on a sunday afternoon 
and the only noise around is like somebody's lawnmower a few doors down and they're just mm -hmm. sitting on their couch, they freak out. Like they can't handle it. They're like they start running this maximum adrenal response. They're essentially going into fight or flight, just sitting on their couch. And the reason they can't identify a trigger is because the trigger is absence of triggers, right? The wow. trigger is that there's nothing stressful around them. And yeah, so they're becoming right. super stressed because they don't have any, anything to pay attention to. They don't have anything to respond to. They don't have anything to direct their training and their knowledge and their abilities towards because there are no threats. You know, we did some functional MRI research on SEALs and the way they spun it was, hey, SEALs are really good at identifying threat. Uh, so when you look that, you know, they'll have actors and actresses um, take photos and it's like, you know, show, you know, you know, show fear, show anger, show, uh, you know, whatever. And, and these people are trying to act things out with their face and they're taking pictures of them and they're showing them to seals while they have, you know, while they're inside of an MRI machine and they're seeing what regions of their brain are lighting up. And if the amygdala lights up, then you're perceiving a threat. And so the way they spun the article was like, hey, we're really good at perceiving threat. But if you look at it, it's like we kind of perceive everything as threat, <laughs> you know, it's like, right. So, yeah, we catch all the threats, but we also think that people who are scared are, are, are a threat, you know, or people, you know, so um, it, it, it's a great question. And it's it's as it's as philosophical as it is medical at this point, because we just don't have the data to know. Um but I, I think there, you know, I, I would have to say that, that there, there, is a, there is a certain amount of autonomic flexibility that has to be built into you for you to make it through SEAL training. Um, you know, one of my good friends was, the, was a psychologist in the Navy, and he was hired to predict success in SEAL training. And they gave him a lot of resources and a lot of money and lots of years to do it, and he finally said, Hey, I can't predict, I can't predict success. He said, but I can predict failure. And if the worst thing that's ever happened to you is your parents got divorced, you're probably not going to make it through. <laughs> so you should be, sadly, you should be searching for people who have had the most traumatic life possible. <laughs> and those are the yeah. people who are going to be the most likely to make it. So they have some, they have some autonomic, uh, you know, some robust autonomic training, let's yeah. say throughout their lives to get, to get them, to ability to, to go through SEAL training. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, so I've heard uh, Jocko Willink actually talk about that, like the reverse engineering of the autonomic nervous system, kind of like how SEALs are basically like we're reversing the ideology of like, you know, because, you know, their normal response, I mean, like in any kind of like mammalian DNA is like, you know, if you perceive something as a threat, you don't run towards the threat. Right. Or you do something to try to, to create some type of defense, at least to, right. you know, um, counteract the threat. And right. in reality, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do as a Navy SEAL. Um, you know, it, it's you're you're supposed to be, you know, a, a, a lot of people would consider, you know, a lot of Navy SEALs to be, you know, our sort of realistic version of the super soldier. You know what I mean? Of someone who is the the specific, you know, I want I gotta be careful like what words I use, but like just like this like a machine, right? This this specifically designed for war. And it's like you said, like you're basically taking a, a human being who has all these thoughts and feelings and emotions and all this stuff and 
who knows what has happened to them in their life. And then you're basically like using those things, using those experiences to mold that particular person into a, almost like a machine specifically designed for one thing. And that's to, you know, go towards the threat and take down the threat. Right. And then like, when, like you said, when you come back from that, there is no process that they go through, right. Where they reverse engineer that process that they did to put you in that mode. There's nothing that they do that that they do to take you back out of that mode. And, 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 you know, obviously, you know, a lot of people who have never really seen real violence and that kind of stuff who don't really understand the perceived nature of really kind of what can go on or what can happen. You know, I, I think that's why you get, if we're talking about the current situation of kind of like what's going on over between Ukraine and Russia right now, I think it's why you got to see a lot of people like just freaking out, losing their minds on social media, right? Because it's like, and I, and I actually talked about this when Stephanie Remke was on my podcast we talked about this because obviously growing up doing mixed martial arts, you know, a, a good period of my life and, and that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, also being involved in some situations where, you know, I had, you know, had an unfortunate chance to witness real violence in certain situations and kind of how that changed the thought process of my brain and how I kind of perceive certain situations now in my mind. And, um, you know, we just talked about the fact of like what most people don't understand. Most people, the general population does not understand um, the real nature of the real reality of, of, of real violence. They don't, they don't know how to take it in. They don't know how to process it and they don't know what to do with it in their mind. So it's like when they see it for the first time on a screen or on a phone or whatever, even if it's somebody putting it out there for propaganda purposes to create a certain viewpoint, it's like they don't know how to take that information in otherwise and just to like freak out about it, post about it. Oh, I got to talk about this. I got to talk about that. And then it's like they, they just like want to go on and on and on and on and on about it because they just don't understand how to really take it in. Whereas like someone who goes through SEAL training, um, the whole perceived nature of, of violence of, you know, extremities, those kind of things is tanking in, like just take it in and it just absorbs. Right. And then you go and you, right. you deal with the problem. And so like the, the so there's I, benefits I, to that, but there's drawbacks. I would say that, um, a more accurate way to think about it is <clears throat> what you're what you're trying to give, what you're trying to train in SEALs or, or any special forces or any any combat troop for for that matter, um, or even a fighter, right? Like you know, right. if you're a mixed martial artist, when you get inside of the cage, the more you can use your brain, the better your chances are, right? You know. Right. Um, so what you want is for people to have access to all, all their facilities and resources. And so what we do in the SEAL, what we do in SEAL training is continually to de- continue to demand high performance during high stress and not just high physical performance, but high cognitive performance, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, one, one of the big differences between uh, us and all, all the other special forces is how much water, how much stuff we do in the water. And you, and you right. can think about that as, it's uh, maybe like a more gentle, more benign place to be, but but the water's completely unforgiving. When you mess up, when you mess up in the ocean, you die, right? And, and just there explain are no, there what are no the reasons. letter SEAL stands for for people who don't know. Yes. and where that came yeah, from. Yeah, so it, yeah, so it, it's an acronym for sea, right. air, and land, and and what it stands for is um, you know basically that that seals can what we call infiltrate, like they can go into any area or come out of any area through any modality, like through any, through any, uh, 
mobilization techniques. So like we can come in through the water in boats, we can swim in, we can come in from submarines, we can skydive in, we can uh, repel in, we can rock, we can climb a cliff and get inside. You know, we can, we can come through the water, we can come through the air, we can come from the land and we can leave through all those areas, which makes it a really hard force to, de to defend against, you know, because you never know which way they're going to choose to, to assault your target. So um, when we, when we do things that sound kind of benign, like, um, you know, like you, like you do early in training, you do something called underwater knot tying and you have like this 18 inch piece of rope and you have to learn like a dozen knots and, uh, you'll go, you hold your breath and you go to the bottom of the pool and the instructor writes on a board, like what knot for you to try. And like you do the knot and then he inspects the knot and then he might have you do two or three knots before he lets you go back up. Well, as soon as you start getting a little stressed, like, Oh man, I can barely hold my breath anymore. I feel like I want to bolt to the surface. And he's telling me, Oh, I got to tie another knot. Well, now I can't let that stress interfere with my ability to tie the knot. Or when we do, when we learn how to scuba dive, they, you know, they tear, they tear your regulator of your mouth and turn your air off and tie knots in your hoses and rip your mask off and throw your fins away and all this. And then you have to calmly go through the procedures of putting everything back together. And these are actually the things that people fail more than the physical hard stuff, you know, of like the long, hard runs and the long, hard rucks and the log PTs and all that other stuff that gets glorified. The things that, the things that people fail is the ability to shoot a target and discern which target to shoot when they're under a lot of stress, when they're running through a kill house and there's four guys entering a room and everything's, you know, it's flashbangs and people shooting and people yelling. And there's, there's targets that look like somebody's pointing a gun at you, but they're, they're holding out their cell phone or something. And if you shoot that person, you fail. Like, so the ability to be able to keep your brain calm, keep your body at like peak performance. So you're running, you know, you're, you're running and gunning, so to speak, like you're, you're using your you're you're pushing your body to its physical limits while keeping your mind as calm as if you're reading a book and that's you know that so that's yeah you know, that's what we're trying to uh inculcate or you know or, or train into our community is that ability and the question again is like are we finding people who are capable of that or are we actually training that into people and then what do we do about that when they come back? And you know, the best answer so far is like, well, there's not a switch. You know, it, you got to think of it as a rheostat. It's like a dimmer switch. Like, well, we can make that go a little bit. Like, you know, we can take you, we can take you from 11 down to nine and then, you know, keep, you know, keep you, uh, uh, we were doing these things where people were coming back and, and they were staying in Germany for a week and going through classes and getting to meet up with the, with their wives and, and other stuff like that and talk to the community and, uh, and, you know, decompress for a week and then come back. So maybe you can get them, you know, when they leave theater, they can go from 11 down to nine and then you can keep them in Germany and maybe get them from a nine down to a seven. And then you can get them back in the States and then slowly take them from, you know, seven down to four or five. And that's probably as good as you're going to get, you know? Right. Um, and then the question you know, then, then the real problems actually start later when they, um, you know, when they lose their job as a SEAL because, the, you know, they're retiring or whatever and they're going from being the best in the world at something to being a nobody and being fairly broken. And, um, and that's, that's when right. they really had the crises. Yeah. And I mean, and I think like every, every athlete deals with something like that to a certain extent, right? I mean, like, you yeah. know, when you're, 
you know, perform at the highest level, you know, for so long. And I, you know, I've seen it happen with bodybuilders, uh, professional athletes and stuff now, you know, in their life, you know, I have friends of mine who, who played at a really high level in the NFL, maybe didn't make it to the hall of fame, but still, I mean, even if you're playing a professional sport or if you're at the really high level of professional sport, I mean, you're still like, it is your whole entire life. I mean, even, even in bodybuilding, even if you never really turn pro at a really high level or never even get to the Olympia, like it's, it's, it's your whole life. You know what I mean? Like it's your whole life for so long, especially some of these guys who do it for 20, 30 well, bodybuilding years, especially yeah. bodybuilding, especially because that's, that's an identity that's apparent, right? right? Like you can't hide the fact that you're a bodybuilder. Like I can walk into a room and not tell yeah. anybody on the seal and nobody's on the seal, but <laughs> You can't hide the fact that you're a bodybuilder. When you walk in the room, you're like, oh, you're a bodybuilder. Yeah. Right. The, the interesting thing that I didn't appreciate until working with the SEALs with Kirk is not only do they have that, but they also have now the traumatic brain injuries and also the toxicities of lead and things like that, that they're dealing with. It's caused brain inflammation on top of all of these just, you know, performance issues. Now they have real brain inflammation that is further impairing their ability to adapt um, that we certainly, I never appreciated it until I started seeing evidence, you know, working with Kirk and working with the SEALs and seeing, um, you know, their blood levels of lead and, um, and then hearing about blast, you know, if they're just, if they're just, you know, near a blast, how much brain injury that one blast can cause to the brain. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's, it's it's worse than football and it's worse yeah. than boxing. Um, right. You know, we sat through a, a few lectures where they're doing slides on overpressurization, so like blast force, and how much that shear forces of the brain because the different densities move at different rates underneath that compression. And so you know the the brain actually shears across the dural sac, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the dura is moving at a different speed than the brain itself because it's different mm-hmm. dis- density. And then the blood vessels are in between those and those are moving it and ev- everything's getting ruptured and everything's getting damaged. And there's a ton of inflammation, but it's global. It's around the entire brain right. because the, the blast is coming from every direction, you know, um, and our, and our, you know, all of our military combatants experience this. It's just the higher the level you are in the military, really, the, the more specialized you, I should say you are in the military uh, towards combat, the, the more money you have to shoot and the more money you have to train with, with weapons and, you know, all that stuff. And the, the more you train, obviously the better you get, but also you're, if you're getting damaged every time you're training, um, you know, it's, tough. It, it's a, it's yeah. a tough balance because now you're destroying the most capable people you have, you're causing more and more brain damage in them every time you're you're mm-hmm. using them to train even other people. And, and toxicities. Yeah, right. and, and there's so much environmental toxin in in combat zones, you know, because you have you have burn pits where you're just mm-hmm. like burning every everything essentially that you don't want the enemy to have. And then you know, whatever Saddam Hussein set all those oil rigs on fire, and then there's ordnance that's unexploded, and there you know those chemicals from exploded ordnance. Uh, from exploded ordnance and from weapons and from fuels and all that stuff. Uh, and, you know, and then these guys are training on ranges all day and getting lead poisoning from, you know, the lead vapor from the weapons and 
you know, it, it's it's a tough life, and it's it's uh, it's underappreciated like how damaged these guys are. Even when they f- look and feel like they're in pretty good shape, uh, when you do their labs and you go, oh. "Wow, like it's <laughs> yeah. amazing you're holding it together and and looking pretty good." And and you think about it, if you do 20 years in the military, you're probably retiring at like 40, 45 years old. So you have plenty of time to do another career, but right. you have the capability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think too, like, yeah, oh, sorry. What I was going to say is I, I think, I think too, is, you know, it's the same for bodybuilding at a certain, a certain extent as well, or professional sports, um, just overall, um, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, this working with bodybuilders, you know, who are coming out of retirement or, or even professional athletes, it's like, you know, as bodybuilders, you know, just being in the sport myself, you know, how much damage we do to our bodies internally externally on a, on a, on a daily basis. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, everybody's got a different, you know, a different level of how much damage that they do. Some guys, you know, specifically do more damage than others because they think it's necessary. Some guys train, you know, a little bit differently, try to minimize the damage, but also try to get more out of, you know, certain other aspects, you know, it really just depends, but I think it's still at the end of the day, it's very hard to counteract or, or miss, the damage that you're doing to some extent. And, um, you know, you know, I think that like you, it's interesting. You said you can look at their blood work and you're like, then you look at them and you're like, you know, it doesn't really make sense because, you know, you look at kind of all their diagnostics of kind of how they're performing on a daily basis, like internally, um, you know, biometric standpoint, and you look at their, you look at them externally and you're like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up, right? Like it doesn't make any sense. But all of a sudden, if you take that same person and you just throw them into a room and you just had them stop everything, right? Everything that they were doing, like their performance every day, their routine every day that they were involved, like all of a sudden, and I don't know if you see this, but like I know in bodybuilding, I would see this. Like you take somebody out of bodybuilding, it's like they age like that. Like they, they like might be, they might have the exact, they might even have a better, you know, a better biometric profile. Um, after you kind of remove everything that was going on, but it's like externally, it's like all this stuff that was happening internally, all of a sudden just catches up. Right. Like I just know, like if you take a bodybuilder who's doing something every single day and like they're beating the hell out of themselves, it's like externally on the outside society looks at him and it's like, wow, like this guy looks great. Right. Like he's ripped he's shredded he's lean you know he's got a great six pack he's got you know great shoulders arms legs he can like just you know leg press you know a thousand pounds you know bench press you know 405 pounds like it's nothing all of a sudden you know like you kind of look at the biometrics going on inside of his body it doesn't really add up with everything that he's able to do sports wise because it's like it should be the complete opposite he shouldn't be able to do and look this way if he's internally like all this is going on but it's like all of a sudden he stops all that and it's like that all catches up to him and you can start to see it externally. Do you feel like you see the same thing or is it different? The body falls apart very easily. I was, Kirk and I've talked about this a little bit, but I did two years of figure competitive competitions and that was probably the worst really? hell I've ever I been in. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look great under the lights and everything, you know, with the spray tan and all that stuff. But um, what I had to do to my body to get it to that condition was horrible. I felt horrible. Yeah. Um, and then after that is when my health just declined rapidly, um, because what I did, you know, to myself, I totally screwed up my hormones, um, you know, lost my period for two 
two years. And um, it took me a long time to get my body back on track after that. So right. it's bodybuilding. Look, I mean, you look great, but what you have to do to get yourself lean enough to get on stage is yeah. crazy. Especially no, if it you're is. trying to do it naturally, like I was. <laughs> that's a oh, really, you were a natural figure competitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was yeah, a natural. That's, that's almost like unheard of at this point. Yeah, well, I couldn't do it today, right? I mean, that was in yeah. like 2011, 2012. Okay. Um, and I couldn't so figure kind of first started really popping off. Yeah. Yeah. So figure then was more like bikini now, I think, you know, so right. no, it was, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, and I did a natural, I made sure that I entered the natural contest because I knew I didn't have a chance with okay. unregulated competitions because, you know, girls using everything under the sun and I got drug tested. I mean, as soon as, cause I, I play second, in my class. And I mean, as soon as I walked off the stage, they didn't let me go anywhere. They took me straight to the bathroom and I had to urinate in front of them, you know? And so, <laughs> so yeah. it was definitely a natural contest. And, um, but what I had to do to my body to get there was horrible. And I only could do it for two years. And I'm glad I chose to only do it for two years because there's no telling if I would have kept right. on where I'd be now. What, uh, what, so you said that you were in the SEALs back uh, prior to 9-11, right? And yep. um, what what SEAL team were you assigned to at the time? I was at Team 5. Okay. Mm-hmm. I heard a story one time, someone told me a story, because, you know, back what I was going to say is is that um, previously when I was talking about the general public trying to understand kind of like the nature of real violence and kind of how it works is the only real references they have are the stuff they see on TV on you know, on CNN or on now on their phone on Snapchat news or whatever, like, right. Like now it's like right in front of your face. Um, and the only other option that they get to really see is, is what's portrayed in movies, right. You know, like stuff like, you know, American sniper, that kind of stuff. And right. I remember one time I was, I was asking, I was asking someone a question. I said, you know, I go, um, who had kind of been involved in, in, and been around Chris Kyle. I I, I said, you know, I go, what, what made him so specifically different, um, than every other sniper, you know, in history. And, you know, I thought his answer was extremely interesting because I think a lot of people don't understand, like when we're just talking about nervous system control and all that, like how much, control and obviously like you can you can talk about like your personal experience and in sort of being around you know that environment and kind of how it affected you but i know he said you know for him like he was like what was what made chris different was the fact that he's like if you look out the window and he's like you look you know a hundred yards you know down the street he's like you might see a guy standing on the street side of the street with a pink hat on and he's like Next time he's like, you're, you know, around a window or whatever. He's like, just go to your window and look at, try to look at the farthest thing that you can see and make out with your eyes and something that's just distinctive to you that's moving around. And he's like, try to see how long you can hold your specific attention to that one thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like the difference between him and everybody else. He goes, is Chris. He's because most people like, he's like, how long can you specifically do that for? He's like, right. Like most people might be able to do it for five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, and, and you're just talking about like just looking at it with your bare eyes, you know, right. Not even looking down at the barrel of a scope. Um, he is, Chris could do that for hours. He right. could look at the same thing for hours and not move. 
So I just wondered yep. what you think is like, like where does that come from specifically when it comes to like attention span? Like, and what was your experience when dealing with trying to really train yourself with, you know, concentration in those moments and what makes you all different in, in, in that specific um, situation? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think all of that stuff gets, you know, gets trained into you to some extent, but again, you know, the question is at, at what level of competency are you beginning training? And, you know, I, I didn't know Chris personally, but I know he, he's from Texas and he, you know, grew up, you know, hunting and, uh, all, all that type of stuff. So he's probably, you know, more comfortable shooting and more, uh, uh, more accomplished at shooting before he even started. Right. So now he's, he's coming in, you know, starting training as the best of his little training group or whatever. Right. Um, but you know, like, in, like I was saying before, it's, you know, it's just like the Olympics, like we all have aptitudes and, and what you're describing is, is what psychologists will call hyper-focus. And so um, people with attention deficit disorder very often are great hyper-focusers. If you look at, neurosurgeons, you look at orthospinal surgeons, if you look at transcontinental pilots, they're like 75% of these people have, are diagnosed with ADHD, uh, you know, either currently or at some point in their life. And why is that? Well, again, it's mislabeled. It's not, it's not, a, a, it's not an attention deficit. It's, it's inappropriate attention. It's like I was talking about the sleep deprived person has inappropriate attention. Um, and so if you're going to be a neurosurgeon and you're going to stare through loops, so that's the same as essentially looking through a scope. Right. Um, right. And you, if you do a six or eight hour, six or eight hour surgery, you really aren't looking outside of those outside of that microscope for six to eight hours. Uh, right. And if you've ever looked at the microscope, that's, that's a pretty damn hard thing to do, but I can hyperfocus. Like, you know, I, I did neurosurgery and thought it was the coolest thing ever. And, you know, came out of there completely dehydrated and uh, realizing that my bladder was about to explode, but didn't rec didn't recognize anything, any of that. And like had wow. the surgery gone another two hours, I probably would have been just fine. And if you would have asked me how long the surgery was, I would say, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour or something. And it, it had been six hours. Um, and, you know, so what we all, you know, we all have aptitudes in that region. And like I said, I didn't, I don't know Chris personally, but that makes perfect sense to me. You know, the stories that you hear just how long how long he stayed attentive on the scope and therefore you know if you think about it if he if he's doing overwatch for an op and he just catches one more thing than than the average sniper he, he gets one more kill every time he goes right. to work well you do that every four or five years and you're you're pretty hard right. to, you're pretty hard to at that point you know? yeah so i, mean I I don't know that it was a drastic difference, but I don't think it takes a drastic mm. difference. You know, I think it's right. It, yeah. You're, you're operating well, at sort of elite level already. So just being exactly. a few percent better at that level is going to make you significantly better. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I talk about just to a certain extent of like people don't understand is, you know, I, I so someone asked, actually asked me, you know, a while back, they said, they go, you know, what, what really are the, the odds of someone um, winning the Mr. Olympia? Like what, what really, you know, in, in bodybuilding, like, I mean, like what, what kind of odds is that? And I said, well, the best way for me to describe that, I said, is, is you said, let's say you have 
10,000 people, right? You have 10,000 guys. Cause I would say there's probably somewhere around, you know, tens of thousands of male body blurs right now in the sport. And obviously talking about the open division, not any of the other divisions uh, specifically, but just specifically the open division. So the Mr. Olympia, obviously for those people who don't know, has been around since like 1962. And, uh, you know, there's only been, I think, um, I want to say 16 winners, 16 winners since 1962. So, and it happens every single year. So, you know, obviously that shows you that the majority of wins have come from mostly the same people winning over and over and over again. So, um, the odds are really like if you take a, a, a group of 10,000 guys, um, who are all competing in bodybuilding, probably maybe a hundred of those guys have the genetics to be able to be, you know, a top tier, top tier pro, you know, let's just say like a hundred of them have the ability to be able to compete at a professional level and at a decently high level, just because they also have the ability doesn't always mean also that you're not going to be able to actually get to that level. It's just, you know, saying like probably out of those 10,000, only probably a hundred of them actually have the ability to compete genetic wise at a top level. Now, if you have a hundred guys who are all genetic, really significantly genetically better than the rest of uh, most of the male population that's competing in the sport, right? So now you're really kind of playing with like a much higher elite out of those a hundred guys, you probably have only about 10 of them that will actually be able to have the ability to ever make it to the Olympia stage. And Mm -hmm. out of those 10 guys, only one of them will actually have the ability to probably win the Mr. Olympia during their time. Now I'd say like probably one, because you might have two or three, but usually during that, their generational period, if you just take those 10 guys during their career times frame, probably only one of them, you know, will actually be able to end up actually winning the Mr. Olympia title. So the, and the people always ask me the difference. They go, well, what, you know, what's really the difference between a guy? Cause they all look great to me. They all look great to me. It's what people always say. And I always go like, it's because like you just said, right? Like the sliver of difference is it really doesn't take a whole lot genetically to make someone Mr. Olympia versus the guy who's placing 15th at the Olympia, right? Like is there difference in how they're training and eating and all that stuff? Is it really that different at that level? No, probably not, but it's the small significant difference at a very, you know, subparticle level that really makes someone that gives them that genetic added difference at such a small level that makes such a huge difference on stage of whether they have the ability to go and be 15th or first. So, and then everybody else kind of somewhere falls kind of somewhere in between. But I just think it's interesting that you said that because you're right. It doesn't take a huge significant difference. Just like, you know, is LeBron James significantly that much better than everybody else in the NBA? It's like, no, they can all play basketball better than any of us. Right. But it's like, his ability is just like the little things, right? Just the little nuances that make him so special. That's what puts him at the top versus everybody else currently right now, like that sits kind of underneath him and in the mix in between themselves. So I just thought that was interesting that you brought that up when it comes to a military perspective, because I'd never even thought about that before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So if you could give people your top five tips for 
improving overall sleep hygiene, sleep quality, what do you think your top five tips would be? I'm kind of. Well, the first thing, the most important, uh, is the Pareto distribution, right? So, uh, out of the top five things, one thing will bring you 80% of the value. Uh, and that one thing that'll bring you the 80% of the value is understanding how important sleep is. So if you, if you, uh, like it. if you care about anything, whatever, like whatever it is you're working towards, it doesn't matter if you want to be a better mother or better CEO or better bodybuilder, body, better bodybuilder or better athlete of a different sport or better, whatever, right. uh, Go to pub, you know, go to PubMed or Google Scholar and type in sleep and whatever else you care about and read until you're panicked. Okay. And when, once you're, once you're convinced that you've screwed up your entire life, now you're ready. (laughs) My God, like everything, like I've wasted so many years by doing this. And that's like, that's the foundation because once you get there, your motivation is going to be high enough to get good sleep that you're going to figure it out. But after that, um, you know, the sleep hygiene, sleep ritualization would probably be right on par with balancing the other pillars of health. Right. So, uh, you can't sleep well. If you, if you have a terrible diet, you, you won't be able to sleep well. If you, if you're completely sedentary or you over over train, you're not going to be able to sleep well. And if you can't manage your stress, um, you're not going to be able to sleep well. So, you know, getting those three, those other three pillars in in order, all equally important. So let's call those three, four and five. Uh, And number two would be um, the sleep ritualization. Right. And so the sleep ritual is super easy. Uh, Some people call it a sleep ritual. Some people call it sleep hygiene, like which is like where's the line. doesn't matter. we're a very visual animal. Uh, about 80% of our, of our neocortex are the part of our brain that people think of when they think of a picture of the human brain, about 80% of our brain is dedicated towards vision, uh, either the actual function of vision or the interpretation of vision. So, um, we're hugely driven by vision and we can't see at night. So we evolved to go to sleep when it was dark and to be awake when the sun was up. Um, that's what, so when people say circadian rhythm, they think that it means going to sleep with the sun and getting up with it. That's alignment of circadian rhythm. Okay. You have a circadian rhythm. If, if there were no light, you would still, your body would still cycle between doing wakeful activities and doing sleep activities. So, um, right. what we do with the sun is we align our circadian rhythm to the planet so that, that we're awake when the sun's up so that we can see. If, if, uh, if you put Brandy and I in a cave and we had artificial lighting and no, no idea when the sun was up or down, um, her circadian rhythm, because she's a female would be slightly shorter than 24 hours and mine would be slightly longer than 24 hours. And so if you just said, Hey, turn on the lights whenever you think the sun should be up and turn off the lights whenever you feel like going to sleep, I would, I would drift one way. She would drift another way. Right. But right. you can see in about two weeks, we both, we both meet up again. 
well, you know, if we're off by 30 minutes a day, uh, about two weeks, we'd be 12 hours out of phase again. So all the circadian rhythm means is that you have a rhythm in your, in your body where every cell in your body, regardless of light, is doing different things when it perceives that the body should be asleep than it does when it perceives the body should be awake. And this is why shift work is so dangerous because when people do shift work, they're operating in an awake environment when every cell in their body is doing things that are associated with being asleep. And so that misalignment leads to more genetic mutations and stuff. And it, you know, shift work is considered a type 2A carcinogen, which is the same thing as cigarette smokes. Um, so anyway, back to the point, we use the sun as our cue. If you think, if you think back 200 years, there weren't alarm clocks and there wasn't electric right. lighting. Um, and so for, all but a flicker of human existence, right? If you think about uh, like this, this modern body that we're in hasn't changed for a couple of hundred thousand years. So if you say, all right, this is a 200,000 year body. And then the last 120 years we've had, you know, rural electrification where we have lights at night. So that's none, that's no time at all, right? I mean, you're talking about one, one, one hundredth of a percent of our existence. We've had this light problem that we have now. So when the sun goes down, that triggers chemical changes in our brain. One of the first things that happens is the release of melatonin. And then that's sort of the initiating hormone that changes all the other brain chemistry. And then a neuropeptide ramps up that's called GABA, capital G-A-B-A, gamma aminobutyric acid, and that slows down the neocortex. All it means to be asleep is to not be paying attention to your environment. There's a barrier between your senses and your perception of your senses. So obviously right. when I'm asleep, my eyes are still working and my ears are still working and my nose is still working and my taste is still working. My Everything right. still works. I'm just not paying attention to it. That's why I can, somebody right. can turn on a light, wake me up or somebody can make a loud noise and wake me up because I can still, my senses are still there. So in order to shut down those, those paying attention to those senses, our brain chemistry has to change. And one of the things that happens with GABA is it lowers the resting potential of a neuron. So if you think of a neuron as like a spring and it's getting ready to explode, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it takes a certain amount of pressure to release the latch to let that spring pop. Well, what the, what the um, GABA does is it lowers the resting potential. So now it takes more energy to release that spring. It takes more energy to get that neuron to fire. Mm. And so... I can overcome the melatonin production. I can overcome the darkness if I choose to pay attention to my senses, right? If say I'm being, if I'm being stalked by a lion or, you know, something like a bear or something like that, and I know this, well, I'm not going to sleep just because the sun went down. I'm going to keep going and I'm not going to feel sleepy because I'm going to override it. I'm going to override it with stress hormones. And I'm going to override it with all the things I'm paying attention to. Right. And the other thing, when the sun goes down, before HVAC, everything got colder. So your body temperature goes down. So every part of sleep hygiene or sleep ritualization is one of those three things. It's decreasing the light in your eyes. It's decreasing how much you're paying attention to your environment, or it's decreasing your body temperature. Those three things make up 100% of sleep hygiene. And there are a thousand ways to go about those. And if you go on the internet, you can read forever about different sleep hygiene techniques and different sleep rituals. And they're all meant to simulate that. So first scare yourself into believing that sleep is the most important thing you can do. Right. Number two, get control of your sleep hygiene, doing those three things. 
uh, just imagine how your ancestors lived or think about a little kid's routine, right? You don't take a three-year-old boy who's like banging trucks together and put him in his bed and turn off the light and walk out of the room. Wouldn't right. work, right? Yeah. There's a whole wind down, whole wind down period. And just think about what are you doing with that kid, right? Either why are you giving them a bath? Well, you're lowering their body temperature when you give them a bath. Why are you putting on onesies and powdering it? Well, you're decreasing the sensory to their skin, so there's less for them to pay attention. That's why you're dimming the lights. Why are you reading them a book that they already have heard 5,000 times? Because you're entrancing, like you're getting them to quit thinking about other things. They're going through this rhythmic Dr. Seuss thing. They're slowing their brain down. They're not paying attention to their environment. And then, like I said, three, four, and five is the nutrition, exercise, and stress mitigation. Love it. Guys, I really appreciate you coming here so much. Um, the, the information has been like just stellar. I, you know, I think, I think like quality wise, cause obviously, you know, we, we do a lot of different stuff on here now. I mean, you know, initially when I first started um, the podcast, you know, it was, it was originally just cause I was like, you know, I'm just going to get like health professionals and like, you know, I have from all different, you know, walks of life and just kind of come on here and kind of give their take on, on, on different things and to give people, you know, really adequate information. And then obviously Charlie and I, you know, kind of have our, you know, our little talks here and there. We started talking about all kinds of different stuff. And, and, and so then people kind of, you know, we had like sort of like a mixed audience of like who liked, you know, certain ones or who liked certain episodes or, you know, and so um, I really try to still get a kind of like a really good balance of, you know, um, episodes that are really high quality in education and then episodes that are, you know, centered a little bit more around, you know, entertainment value, that kind of stuff, things that are kind of going on, um, you know, in the mainstream media, that kind of all that kind of stuff. And, and just because, you know, everybody's kind of got a different flow of, of what they really like hearing out of the podcast. But I think like, if there's one, if there's one episode that I think that everybody needs to listen to and listen to the whole entire thing, like this, this is the one, because I just think like the overall quality of value um, that we've just talked about this today is this is really been significant because I think this is something that everybody can relate to. Everybody can sit down and and be interested in and and and, and gain gain a significant amount of value from just in their daily life and their performance and how they're you know working in their job and all this kind of stuff. Because it doesn't matter what you guys do, what you do, guys. It's like you could literally be making sandwiches at Subway. If you want to make better sandwiches, you need to get better sleep, right? Like it doesn't matter like what your career is. Like everybody can benefit from bettering their overall quality of sleep. So I don't know how this got turned into sleep month, but somehow I got turned into, uh, into sleep month on my podcast, but always, always, you know, just great conversations with everybody who I bring on from, you know, the appear on group, you know, and, and who I've met, it's like, those always tend to be, you know, really up there episode quality wise and really always seem to get the most downloads and people really enjoy it. So I really appreciate you guys giving me your time today and, you know, I appreciate you guys coming on and uh, means a lot and, uh, you know, hope to get you guys uh, back on at some point, you know, in the future as well. So. Yeah, we got to get Brandy to talk more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Maybe we'll bring her, I'll bring her back on. I'll bring her I back like to on listen there. To so. <laughs> no, he's yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, and just you're a great dynamic together too. So, if uh, if what's the best way for people to uh, get a hold of you guys if they want to uh, get in contact with you? Uh, go through my website, doc d o c parsley like the herb p a r s l e y doc parsley dot com. Okay. Yeah. 
and social media, what's your guys' handles so people can start following you? Uh, mine's at Brandy FNP on Instagram. Okay. That's IG. Then, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then Brady Preston on Facebook. Yeah. Don't no, slide no. in her DMs. Don't slide Sorry. in her DMs, guys. She's, take, she's taken. She's taken, and he might, and he has the ability to just airdrop into your house and, and kill you in your sleep. So <laughs> don't uh, don't be sliding any DMs, guys. And uh, <laughs> yours, it, what's what's your what's your what's your handle on IG, Kirk? Uh, I'm at Kirk Parsley on okay. Instagram. Um, Pretty straightforward. I've been banned from Twitter. And, uh, <laughs> from Twitter, what happened? What this is news? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I got banned like a year ago during the COVID. He got for, too political, oh. supposedly, by okay. reposting CDC actual CDC studies. Somehow. I was, I was, oh. yeah, I was posting <laughs> NIH and CDC information oh. data on COVID and making comments, and apparently, I wasn't qualified to do that, and I got right. banned. And they never told me why, but uh, you know, I they took away all the followers and I can't do anything on Twitter. I think, I think if you go on Twitter, you can still see all my old posts, but I can't post, I can't do anything. I can't. He has no take, followers I, anymore. Yeah, I lost like 10,000 <laughs> followers and all that. What? Stuff. Yeah. I actually got my, I got my first taste of reprimandation on uh, social media the other day. Um, because of, you know, those people who don't know, like I'm starting a male hormone clinic and, uh, and opening up in, uh, in South Florida, um, here in the next couple months. Um, but, um, I was, I was doing some, I was kind of like looking to kind of run, you know, an ad presentation I've been doing, we're doing a lot of like social media, like branding and stuff, trying to get, you know, uh, hype built up around everything. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I've never been had any kind of like shadow ban or anything like towards any of my posts. Like, and I mean, I like, I mean, like I literally posted a picture, like, I don't know, like on Valentine's Day, like, you know, a few, like a couple weeks ago. And I felt that really kind of like pushed the border. And I got like no like drawback from Instagram, like nothing. I posted a picture like talking about, you know, like what it means to be an alpha male and all this stuff. And I wrote all this like positive information. And it because I used the words uh, sex drive, uh, I used the term sex drive and I got, uh, yeah, I got I got uh, my post like got thrown to the bottom of the stack and only got like eight likes or something like that. My ad got removed. My ad got taken down. Uh, they gave me a warning. Uh, Instagram gave me a warning for promoting um, promoting sexual work con- like promoting a what do they call it sex work content. Yeah, and wow. um, <laughs> yeah, the one guy that's not the one fitness model on IG that's not actually on promoting OnlyFans. Um, you know what I mean? I was actually trying to help people out with hormone health. Somehow I ended up getting, uh, yeah, somehow I ended up getting reprimanded for that. But anyways, I removed the the term sex drive. They allowed me to put my post back up. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure exactly what, what that means for my, my account moving forward. If people are actually going to start, keep seeing my stuff or how that's going to work, but Oh well, we uh, <laughs> we live and we learn. I guess they're getting pretty serious about that kind of stuff. So that's it's uh, interesting though. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for so much for coming on. Um, you know, I hope to see you guys back on here sometime here in the near future. Might have to get Brandy on uh, by herself <laughs> so show so I can get her to talk more. All right, um, but yeah. So, anyways, guys, this is as always. It's Generation Alpha 
signing out. I will see you guys on the next episode. Thank you.